Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm here today with Dr. David Svi Kalman and Dr. Michal Biton, both of whom are fellows in residence here at the Shalom Hartman Institute. It's Thursday morning when we're recording this, and of course we're talking this week about the major news topic that many of us are focused on all around the world, which is the novel coronavirus and the impact it's having on our lives, our communities, our interconnectivity uh, as a global community, and and specifically on the Jewish community. So first, before we jump into it, uh, David Svi and Michal, how are you both holding up? I'm going to start with you, David Svi. You know, I think it hasn't hit Philadelphia as badly as it's hit New York yet, but my wife and I are both working from home out of an abundance of caution, which is a phrase which has previously been in my life only when I was looking over my wife's law notes and now seems to be everywhere. And we're waiting for the impending closure of our kids' schools, which I'm sure is coming and thinking about how we're going to adjust to having them around us all the time. Yeah, this is such a such a strange, surreal moment. I think in the past couple of weeks, I've been really anxious watching this kind of evolve and knowing that I'm not sure 100% how to stop certain things from happening. I do know that in the last week, I've had to step up as a communal leader, as someone who runs an independent minyan and has to make major like decisions about you know community services, things like that. And that has actually made me feel like a strange sense of resolution and calmness. Like we're going to have to make decisions and go on. And this is a marathon, not, not a sprint. Yeah, all of this is uh, is deeply personal for all of us because we're just human beings. This is just a human story around the world. But I think a lot of us play different roles. Michal, you alluded to that as a community leader. I feel that way too, both with respect to an institution that has to make decisions and did around canceling a major conference. We canceled at the Hartman Institute all staff and faculty travel, uh, at least through Pesach, and I anticipate it'll be longer than that. Big questions about Hartman Summer. And then meantime, you know, we live in Riverdale, which is one of the kind of epicenters so far, at least in the New York Jewish community, even nationally, uh, around this story. My son's school has been closed for two weeks and probably will be longer with 40 people now in the school community who are afflicted with this. I'm curious how you, Michal, are navigating the different feelings that you might have as a community leader versus a parent versus an employee of an organization. And I, I'm wondering what, whether, how do you navigate those different types of identities? Yeah. Yeah. And I will just add, it's not only about identities. It also has to do with the many communities that we're part of. So I've been slowly seeing like different Jewish communities that I'm related to suddenly find themselves at the center of this. For some time, they might have felt like, oh, we're immune to this. We're not in Riverdale. Uh, it hasn't hit us yet. But just every day, a new community, whether it's in Long Island, uh, in Brooklyn or some other places, communal leaders just having to realize that nobody is immune and it's not going anywhere. So, so yeah, it's been it's not easy to navigate the different identities and roles around this. I, I think I have been looking to voices of moral leadership right now and asking myself which examples are there for each of us to follow of people who are asking all of us to listen to experts and also to think responsibly. What does it mean to be a, a citizen right now? What does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to not just think about my kid, but like, you know, the largest social structures that are affecting kids of all parents in America and around the globe right now? It is a, it is a funny thing, funny, I guess, in a perverse way. It's a funny thing to notice the the idea that somehow Riverdale and New Rochelle are different planets than Brooklyn or the Upper West Side. And to notice the the subtle ways in which the kind of human instinct to notice difference 
is so profound that people are forgetting that this virus is going to afflict human beings regardless of who they are. And so the, the temptation, for instance, by some politicians to name it as being the Chinese virus, as though giving it a kind of racial or ethnic designation will keep it separate or different. And even on a local level to try to say, well, it's not here yet, and therefore business as usual, even though we know how, how deeply we are connected to each other. The, the Jewish question is, how was your Purim? David Svi, I mean, it's a powerful holiday, which I want to explore a little bit about community. And I, I'm curious what it felt like uh, to celebrate Purim this year in the middle of all this. There's a feeling which I've had, which I'm sure you've had as well. Group settings are often a place where you feel a sense of strength, especially when you're surrounded by members of your community. You feel like we're all here. It's a kind of show of force. And there's something about the presence of this virus, even if it is not actually in your community, but there's only the threat that it might come to your community. There's a sense that that sense of strength turns into just a sense of real anxiety. Every additional person in this room increases my sense that something is wrong or something could potentially go wrong. And so I think even though we had a relatively normal Purim, there was definitely that sense in the, you know, even in the small ways of, you know, you don't get food yourself, but somebody serves you food at a banquet, for example. And also I think the sense that many people had in my community that while we are meeting now, we may not meet together again in person for a very long time. And there's, um, there's a way in which the early stages of this outbreak can feel a little bit like a snow day. It feels like, well, you know, things will return to normal quite soon. But the fact that we actually don't know where this is going and how long we will be in this condition means that I expect that there will be different phases to our, our emotions around being cooped up at home, not being allowed to publicly congregate that are going to change the way that we think about all of this. Yeah, uh, for, for me, Porium was a funny experience of like watching totally different responses at the same time. For my community, we had to cancel our Megillah reading a couple of hours hours beforehand. I ended up hosting a small private Megillah reading in my apartment and I welcomed folks by having them take off their shoes, their jackets, washing their hands with soap and wearing latex gloves uh, because I was so anxious and feeling responsible about having people in the same place and wanting to both do the mitzvah that, that, that fulfill the commandment of reading the Purim story together, but also being very, very acutely aware that each of our individual actions can affect our communities. And then again, there were people who I think kept celebrating Purim nearly in the same way as they did every other year uh, in terms of the Mishloch HaManot, the, the, the packages of food they were sharing with each other and the celebrations that were happening. And it's an interesting moment for all of us how to, I think David, see what you're saying is very profound, that people are being really moved to like be near each other. We're all so anxious. We're actually craving community, especially now. Uh, and it's a really difficult and complex moment in which we talk about how do we decrease social contact without promoting acute social isolation. Yeah, Purim was hard in our house. Uh, Purim is one of the high holidays in the Ives Kurtzer house. It's a holiday of levity that we take very seriously. There's a lot of uh, work involved with getting dressed up and showing up in synagogue for Megillah reading in that way. And then I've always taken a day off on Purim because how else would you get everything done of driving around Mishloch Manot packages around the community? And there was a distinct moment the afternoon of Purim when it kind of sunk in to my kids that we were not leaving the house, that we weren't going to shul. Our synagogue only held a Megillah reading with a handful of people so that they would have a minyan, and then they did it exclusively on Zoom. And it really is not the same. And um, it helped when I was able to say to my kids, you know, 
99% of the Purim costume is for the purposes of Facebook. The social media actually enables us to celebrate it, but it was really tricky. I'll tell you the thing that I'm struggling with the most, I think, is, and here's an imperfect analogy to just war theory. So a number of just war theorists, Moshe Halbertal among them, argues that when militaries can make big existential decisions at the top of the decision pyramid, it exonerates everybody at the bottom, the foot soldiers, from having to make big moral decisions. So somebody at the top has to decide to drop the nuclear weapon. And then ultimately, it's the people down at the bottom don't really know about what they're doing, and they therefore don't have to weigh the responsibility. And the change in the nature of warfare, guerrilla warfare, for instance, is when you have hand-to-hand combat on the street, individual soldiers have to make really difficult ethical decisions in real time, and inevitably they're going to screw those up. And I, I, the thing that I'm struggling with the most is I'm not generally a person who just loves being told what to do by authority figures, but right now I feel like every decision we're making are decisions that are up to us, our individual choices. So, well, the synagogue is not closed for Shabbat. Do I want to take my family to shul? One of my kids' schools is closed. The other one is not. Do we send our kids to school? And there just is not sufficient clarity that's coming from the authorities of do X and don't do Y. And it's making all of us as individual actors responsible for all of these choices. Do I get on the subway? Do I go to that other person's house? I feel like it has these huge ramifications for us thinking about ourselves as individuals responsible for something that we know that we're part of. Like whatever decisions we make have an implication on other people because it's not just about catching the virus. It's also about transmitting it. But it just feels like too much power concentrated in too many individuals to shape the spread of this. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think we have a choice right now, but to actually hold ourselves morally responsible due to a lack of centralized leadership that's telling us what to do. But I actually see an opportunity here. Uh, I think there, there is an opportunity for these moments of crisis to remind ourselves that we might be fooling ourselves into thinking that we're exonerated from moral responsibility and moral accounting. And this is stripping bare th- those myths um, and those kind of fallacies that we convince ourselves of. My moral question is, I actually feel morally implicated. Why is it that it's only now that I'm freaking out about the high number of students in families experiencing homelessness? Uh, why is it that it's only now that my husband and I are literally writing down names of elderly people that we know who don't have families and we are calling them up and being like we want to be here for you but we don't we don't do it on a regular basis so this could i agree with you yehuda that there are very big problems with lack of clarity knowledge and authority but i also think it could be a moment of ethical recalibration uh, for each of us to, to actually step up and to remain morally implicated beyond this pandemic I think you're totally right. And there's a way in which this experience is, on the one hand, totally unique, really unlike anything that any of us on this planet have experienced within our lifetimes. And another way in which it is just an exceptional version of the kinds of struggles that many people deal with on a regular basis around lack of resources, around sickness, around making difficult decisions in a moment when one is not being properly supported by one's community. And it is a moment when we can 
relate to one another in a way because we're all dealing with the same decision as opposed to dealing with it at different times. In some ways, this feels like the polar opposite of the climate change discussion, which is the slow-moving disaster, which is affecting different people in different ways over a very long time period, whereas this is affecting people very, very quickly, where you can look at another country and see where your country will be in just a couple of weeks. There certainly is something powerful in that sense of community that this moment is bringing us. What fascinates me about that move is, you know, the virus like this, as we talked about before, flattens difference. And it's fascinating to think about religious communities like the ones that we inhabit of maybe different denominations, but still the same orientation, where religion differentiates us, where community constitutes real boundaries in who we see in our community, who's visible to us, to whom are we responsible, and basically watching those distinctions get flattened really quickly. Now, in some ways, the virus has served, has shown us how powerful community bonds are. You know, to hear from some of the folks in New Rochelle who are infected by this precisely because they belong to thick community, that in the context of the same week, they showed up at a wedding, a bris, uh, services at their shul, and of course, those in retrospect wound up being three contexts for wide contamination of community. So it's proof of concept of how powerful thick communal bonds are, um, and a reminder that ultimately those boundaries are totally mythic, totally imagined, totally invisible. Yeah, it's just interesting to think to notice who's kind of leans in to the thickness of community in a moment like this, and who looks at it and says all of those bounds of community are basically are morally irrelevant when it comes down to the fact that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore experience the same vulnerabilities. I just keep thinking that this moment is bringing out the best and the worst in communities. And, not, and you know, it's not only about religious communities. I keep thinking about groups of young, healthy people, which are its own demographic, and about how people who have very low chance of getting seriously ill from this, how we are reacting to this moment. And I've seen people react with a tremendous you know, focus on themselves and like, okay, we'll, we'll be okay. So let's just keep going on as usual. And I've also seen people act with tremendous selflessness. Let, let me take this moment and my resources and my health and think about those who are, who are vulnerable. So that, that I think is a function of this sort of crisis that is just showing us the best and the worst and would hopefully also let us define who we want to be for the future. You would, I'm curious how you relate to this crisis, not just as an individual making choices on your own and as the president of an organization, but also as a parent making decisions for your family, which I'm sure is difficult for kids, right? They, on the one hand, are being very much affected by this. Schools are being closed. There's attempts to make modified schedules, which some of which seem very creative and, and really heroic, but it's very difficult for them. and They don't have full agency. And I'm curious how you have talked to your kids about this and what kind of issues that has brought up for you. Yeah, it's been hard on the kids in part because one of our kids is quarantined and the other two are not. So I have one at home in quarantine who's basically going nuts. It has, you know, it has a limited amount of activities that are provided to him by the school. But just he said for the first time, he's like, I cannot believe how desperately I want to go back to school. And it's a 14 year old boy. That's not like a commonly articulated phrase in our house. Uh, and meantime, two other kids who are leaving who you can tell the other kids are sometimes envious uh, of Noah's ability to stay home and sometimes are really excited that they can have the normalcy of showing up to school uh, without it. And I think what's hard there's a lot of things that are hard for them, especially the younger kids, around the inconsistency of the rules. Why is one school open and one school closed? And which do they prefer? Are they they're simultaneously anxious 
about getting the virus by being in public spaces and simultaneously anxious about the disruption that comes with staying home and with not being able to see their friends. We're making basically arbitrary choices. You can go to school, but we're not going to any play dates. And that goes back to the authority question of just um, we're trying to do our best guess. The other kind of disruption that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of days is this has disrupted our household in all sorts of ways, the first world problem of which is that because we have a quarantine kid, nobody can come help us. So our babysitter, we told to stay home. Our housekeeper said to stay home. So it's also kind of changing my role as a parent and a head of household. I'm also married to a head of school who has been working 16-hour days because of this on calls with the state at all times. So just trying to create a sense of routine and normalcy in the house around cooking dinner every night, staying on top of the laundry, has also just impacted who I am you know, a little bit as a parent, and not to mention the fact that I'm also trying to run an organization and doing you know nine Zoom calls a day. So there's a lot, there's just, there is, I think David your question gets to this, there's like the big identity philosophical questions, who are we are in the world, and then there's just the running life right now. Is just weird and complicated. Yeah, and, and I want to add to what Yehuda said one more layer about parenting. I feel like this moment has destabilized a little bit my identity as a parent. What I mean is the following. I think that I've always been so... I, I put so much attention on my kids and how to raise them and what to do with them, you know, a little bit of like a victim of helicopter parenting right now. And right now, when I read statistics and, and data on vulnerability... It's clear to me that, thank God, my little kids are not the most vulnerable ones. And I literally, like, just petrified that, God forbid, my beautiful children can be carriers and actually hurt other people who are more vulnerable. So my identity as a daughter right now has actually really come to the fore of just what it means to be a person in this world. And how do I negotiate between needing to, you know, to care for my children and to make sure they're okay, but also reminding myself over and over again, like, if I'm trying to be calm and reasonable about this moment, thank God our children, who we tend to think as the ones who need us the most, they are somehow immunologically uh, in some way like, a, like, like privileged at this moment. And what does it mean to actually shift communal priorities and shift our lens as parents to not necessarily only think about, you know, is my kid going to be okay today, but who are the, the vulnerable folks right now, which include older people and those who are immunocompromised uh, in many different ways. Invisible and invisible ways. And that's part right. of the issue right. is that we don't always see the visibility of immunocompromised status. And this was one of the most challenging conversations I had with my kids was, I'm not nervous about sending you to school because of you getting this. I'm nervous about you going to school because of you transmitting this. And that was very hard for my kids to wrap their head around because they don't feel sick. They may not be. They probably are not. But they are part of an ecosystem, and they don't tend to think of themselves in that way. So let me ask one other Jewish question coming up, which is, okay, we, so we just got through Purim. And in some ways, you know, the technological elements, uh, Zoom, et cetera, allow us to celebrate Purim, uh, even though we couldn't quite do it right. Uh, we're three weeks, three and a half weeks out from Pesach, which is uh, another Jewish holiday of connectivity, of households. We don't know where we're going to be, obviously, and it's going to be different in different Jewish communities and in different Jewish households. But any thoughts as you look forward to the Jewish community observing Pesach together and apart and what that's going to look like and what that's going to feel like? I know that I've been uh, stockpiling on gluten-free <laughs> food for the past couple of weeks, just like uh, imagining that we might need to ride this wave beyond Pesach. You know, we'll need to have important conversations as a community. We we often celebrate our holidays in ways that are beautiful, but that also involve a lot of material consumption. And I, and I really hope, I, I, I really hope that we can 
use this moment to ask ourselves questions of how do we open our homes? How do we invite the hungry to come and eat? How do we imagine our communities beyond just our, you know, the people that we see? And really using the moment of Pesach not only to ride the, the pandemic, but to embody the values of freedom that Pesach represents. We will probably talk about this more as Pesach comes closer. But Pesach feels like a different kind of gathering and a, a more significant gathering than the many, many gatherings which have been canceled so far, because for so many people, it's a touchstone of their own family lives. And to have that disrupted because of travel, because of concerns around infection, will probably make this feel real to people in a way that it has not already felt real, or maybe it will kick it up a notch in unfortunate ways. I keep thinking about this image from a Haggadah that I saw last year. I'm doing research now on the Haggadot created by Kibbutzim in the 40s and the 50s when they were trying to reinvent the holiday of Passover to reflect their socialist values and also to reflect their Zionism and to reflect also Yom HaShoah and Yom HaTzmut and Yom HaZikaron, none of which existed at that point. So they're trying to just kind of combine them all into this one holiday. And many of these Haggadot have illustrations of the dining hall as this kind of sacred place where everyone is coming together in this night to um, talk about their lives and to celebrate their story. And the images in some ways feel kind of silly because dining halls are not so interesting. They're kind of grungy looking. I mean, if you've ever been in any kind of dining hall, you know what I'm talking about. But there's a way in which they elevate this thing that really has come back to me this week as I think about the kinds of experiences, the kinds of communal experiences, which I've so far treated as being obvious and a given and are now really in jeopardy. Not to mention all of the, what we might call the macroeconomic considerations that result with the cancellation of all of this Pesach travel. Pesach industry is a multi-billion dollar industry between Israel and North America. Beyond the economic effects we're going to experience globally because of this pandemic, there are going to be particular Jewish communal and institutional consequences from these types of shifts. Somebody was telling me recently that there are a lot of Israeli nonprofits, especially in the religious community, whose sole fundraising pitch takes place during Pesach programs by people traveling from America and around the world to Israel over Pesach, who simply don't know where those resources are going to come from. I was thinking about one Purim-Pesach dichotomy that, who knows, may be useful, is I noticed that in the Megillah, remember the Megillah story starts with the depiction of the Jewish people as scattered and dispersed. And as a result, all of the story winds up being about collective organizing. That's what Esther tells Mordechai, go gather all the Jews, Knosset, Kolei, Yudim. And then everything takes place in public with large, ostentatious displays of the Jewish people in public. So in some ways, Purim celebrated in private homes is a real devastation of the story of Purim because it's really supposed to be about the collective power of the Jewish people in public. And maybe this is optimistic or at least just nice. Pesach is the opposite. You read through Exodus 12 and 13, the whole story is about people in their own households. It's a really domestic household. Now, of course, our households include our cousins and our grandparents who travel in from other places. But at least conceptually, Pesach may wind up being, in 2020, a kind of biblical Pesach, where everybody is doing the Passover in their own homes without this piece of the kind of collective organizing of Purim. And even though this is not obviously the conditions you would want to create such a situation, there's something that could be useful, at least when kind of rereading the story, that 
as we're forced back into the domesticity of our own households, we're kind of embracing one of the earliest images of what Pesach was supposed to be. Yeah. I love that. I love that, Yehud. I think it's such a powerful um, dichotomy between both of them. I do want to just add a question to the mix. When I think about Purim and Pesach and so many of our holidays, they tend to be the story of like the, the Jewish community and against this like external enemy. And it's like salvation and triumph comes when the Jews win the story and, and move ahead towards the promised land. And this, this pandemic is just like shattering that. Like the walls between the, the binary of like Jew and non-Jew and the enemy from outside and within are kind of completely being destabilized. And I wonder what a new narrative of collectivity and shared identity looks like when we confront the myth that we tend to deny that we're not somehow connected to everybody around us, regardless of, of, of religion, race, ethnicity, or, or, or geographic um, location. So I think this is going to also introduce important questions about what it means to have community. Of the many ways in which all of us have been affected by COVID-19, one of the most prevalent has been the shift of work from physical spaces to virtual spaces. I spent a long time in grad school and a long time just kind of cooped up at home, writing and interacting with people, mainly not in person. And I feel like I'm right back in that space right now. And because one of the things I studied in grad school was the history of technology, one thing that I was able to think about in this context was the fact that this move towards virtualization is not something which came about just through the internet, but has actually been something that Jews have been thinking about for around 100 years, really since the invention of radio and the telephone. So the text we're reading today is by the Tzitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who lived between 1915 and 2006. And he is really one of the first people to respond to this move towards virtualization. He's obviously not thinking about Zoom and Skype. He's thinking about radios and telephones writing this in 1942, in the middle of World War II. And he's responding to this question, which a lot of Jewish communities have been responding to in their own ways in the last week or so, about whether it's okay to fulfill one's obligation to hear the Megillah or to respond amen for the many parts of a synagogue service that you're supposed to have a minyan, a quorum of 10 people for. So the Tzitz Eliezer, in responding to this, he rejects this idea that you can have a cantor in one place and a congregation in the other place for a few reasons. First of all, he says, in a situation like that, the cantor can't have a sense of humility. To have a sense of humility, you really need to be in the same physical location as the congregation because they are part of what gives you a sense that you are in the presence of God. Beyond that, you can't have a proper intent around the words that you're saying without being in their physical presence. Beyond that, though, he, he does not like the visual itself. He doesn't like the idea that there's a congregation which is doing nothing but listening closely to a radio. He finds that, I think, viscerally offensive. More than that, and I think this is also relatable, he has this inclination that if a person is really just broadcasting, especially if that broadcast is one-directional, then the reason they're doing it is probably pretty selfish. That The reason that they're doing that is really in order to promote themselves and is not really about being in a place where one is with a community, where one is trying to to humble oneself before God. So I've been thinking about this text a lot this week and imagining the ways in which we can and cannot be present with each other in person. And I'm curious whether this text resonates with you and your experiences right now. What definitely resonates is the sense of loss as a participant. For us, it was sitting around a, 
uh, an iPad watching services in synagogue where all of the iPads were muted. So there was no possible way of even interacting with the reading. And on Purim in particular, that's that's very bleak because it's actually one of the few times where you're really supposed to be interacting with the service by booing Haman. And so people were like booing in the chat box, <laughs> but it had none of the physical feeling of what you're supposed to feel like when you show up and interact with services. I can't tell, however, and this is part of the question here, whether what was lost was sociological or theological. Is what is being lost here that I'm supposed to show up in community and experience something in community? Or is something lost here of actually the religious ritual and what it's supposed to achieve in the world uh, in relationship to God, about which I feel like I have very little data? So I know I, I felt something from the perspective of a loss as a participant in the experience, I don't know how to think about what was lost in terms of the theological or ritual actual fulfillment of the commandment. Yeah. I'm thinking about your question, Yehuda, and I find it actually a really beautiful expression of theology, that it actually encourages us to think of God not only in terms of like this abstract divine being beyond us, but actually how is divinity manifested in the social fabric in being with other people, maybe seeing, you know, God in their in their human uh, reflection. The other thing that does resonate with me is that Utzit Eliezer mentions the idea of, of intentionality, right? Are you doing this for your own glorification or is there something else at play? And I think this actually opens the door to the current moment that so much of the intentionality right now be in terms of virtual technology and virtual communities is actually to be there for each other, to bring uh, godliness into our everyday experience, to making other people know that we are thinking about them and, and caring for them. So so I wonder if the Tetzeliezer was told of a moment in which the intention to use technology and virtual communities to really alleviate loneliness and isolation, what would he say about it? So in thinking about the difference between the sociological and the theological element, there's a text which I've been thinking about by a theorist named Marc Auger. In the 1970s, he wrote about this concept of a, a non-place, a place which doesn't feel like you're anywhere. And he's thinking about these really in terms of physical places like gas stations or airports, places that feel really generic. And when you are in them, you feel like you could actually be anywhere. You don't feel like you're in any specific location in part because they are just replicated across the landscape. He is not talking about virtual spaces like that, but I think the concept that he's talking about is actually quite prevalent online. And that in many online spaces, you actually don't feel like you're anywhere. Like if I stop you right now, so I'm in Philadelphia, you're in New York, and we're talking to each other over Zoom. And I think there's a way in which we both feel like we're kind of nowhere in talking in this space because it is generic and because it doesn't exist outside of this particular conversation. So there's a way in which the lack of a sense of place makes it difficult to feel both the presence of other people and also any kind of divine presence because really any presence becomes difficult to imagine if you're in a place as blank and generic and as temporary as a virtual space like this. But there, I, it feels to me like there's two easy pushbacks against both that read and the Tzitzeliezer. The first is rabbinic theology, which actually argues deeply against the possibility that God is in one place. That's the major post-biblical revolution is that God is everywhere. Hashem is here, there, everywhere, etc. Um, and God's not located more in the synagogue or in the Beit Midrash, but actually is in the space between all of us. So there's one piece of this that says, actually, maybe virtual spaces enable us to access a version of the right, quote-unquote right theology, that when we think in institutions, when we 
we house God in particular places, we're actually turning those places into prisons for God. And the other piece is, and this goes back to what Michal talked about before around loneliness, how many times do we see, even in the past week, but well beyond, and synagogues have been doing live streaming of services for a long time, where it's not the invisibility of no space that this is happening in, but is enabling human beings in their homes to see and be seen when they couldn't otherwise, that it actually is building the possibility for community precisely because the alternative is so diminishing. Uh, Central Synagogue has been saying this for years. They've been streaming their services, and they're building a new culture of membership. That's really powerful, and it can be healing in, in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, and Yehuda, I think you're also bringing up the distinction between space and community and how they don't have to be uh, the same thing or synonymous with each other. David, what you said actually about this unknown place actually made me think of Heschel and how he writes about Shabbat as a palace in time as opposed to like a palace in space. And what does it mean for us to be able to sanctify uh, time when it's not about the location that you're in? And I wonder if the question we need to ask ourselves is, can we sanctify relationships and human connectivity? You know, when, when they're thought of as distinct of being tied to a specific space and just generally like the, the flattening of the global experience, knowing that we're tied to each other in ways that are so humanly um, significant and intrinsic that don't have to do with physical location. I just think there's something very powerful here. So I think there's kind of a theoretical answer, and then there's also a practical answer to these questions. And I wrote an article in Tablet this week that was attempting to think through the way in which this virus might affect the virtual religious spaces which are popping up now. On a theoretical level, there's no reason why you can't have a religious experience in the privacy of your own home, in virtual conversation with somebody else or the community. In practice, though, although the internet has been around for 30 years or so, and there have been many attempts to create virtual spaces in which people can have religious experiences, and most of them have really failed to compete with physical spaces. That doesn't mean there aren't virtual supplements to real spaces. There are synagogues like Central Synagogue, which live stream the services and which are very successful in those live streams. But that supplementary role has really been the dominant way in which people have experienced ritual online. It is not an exclusive experience. It's really just a kind of additional experience. I think part of the reason for this is that the way that people migrate online resembles a kind of human migration in that sometimes people move because they are pulled and sometimes they move because they are pushed. So far, most of the reason that people have moved online in their shopping, in their communicating with other people, is because it's more convenient. It's kind of pull towards those spaces. It's more fun sometimes to do it online than to do it in person. The coronavirus, it's a massive push. And because of that push, it's moving us into new territory around the kinds of things we expect from our online spaces, because as opposed to previously where, you know, there was physical space, which stayed the same and virtual space, which is getting better. Now there's virtual space, which is staying the same and physical space, which is getting a lot worse. And there are some precedents for the ways in which that kind of push out of physical space can affect religious communities. I think the most powerful one that I'm aware of is the Dalai Lama has done a really good job of trying to make himself available to the community of Tibetan Buddhists who are living in exile because he's aware that there are many people who will never be able to meet him in person, never be able to participate in, in services with him in person. And so he has gone so far as to say on live streams, you know, if you are listening to the sound of my voice, then it is as if you are with me in person. But I wonder how much those kinds of spaces are a temporary phenomenon and how much they 
will be here to stay even after this outbreak subsides. Right. Well, when Maimonides says, here's the direction you're supposed to face, and if you can't figure out what direction you're supposed to face, libo, you've got to turn your heart in a particular direction, which, uh, apropos your point, says, okay, I'm supposed to be there, I'm supposed to be oriented towards there, but if I can't, then I'll come up with another alternative, and does that actually destabilize the whole idea of space? I think you're right, David Svi, that the push or the nudge forces this question, right? So that Tzitz Eliezer is trying to kind of resist the move to do this as though that's where we're supposed to be. But you're signaling to us, that's all well and good to try to resist it until you encounter a reality when you can't resist it. And then we have to come up with a frame or an orientation by which we can live with a new normal. I want to go back to something you said at, at the outset. Because if you're going to do that, if you're going to kind of embrace these technologies, the way to do that is to address what are the values losses that were articulated as part of the criticism against it and try to figure out whether there can be values gains. So loneliness was a good example. We talked about how this might actually be a, a remedy for some of that loneliness. But another that you alluded to at the beginning was the sense of humility. Does the person leading the service lose a sense of humility because they're not surrounded by other people? And I would suggest that we use like our conversation right now as a meta-analysis of that because, um, look, I know all of you people. I know you, David C., even though you're not here in person with me. I know you, Michal. I know Dan, one of our producers who's sitting in the room. And I feel like I'm in conversation with you. The people I don't know and I don't see are the listeners. But that doesn't make me not humble. It actually makes me terrified. Because I don't, and that's, that's Yerachamayim. That's the cantor's fear of God in the room is what are all these people going to think? Because I'm, they are implicated by what I do. And the sense of fear that we have when we project this stuff is something I'm not sure that Tzitzelias are fully understood. That it's not about making sure that other people hear our voices. It's actually really desperately hoping that they like it. And in return, I'm not sure that Tzitzelias are fully appreciates the amount of longing that the listeners have to be in relationship to the rabbi in synagogue during a live stream or the person reading Megillah or the people who are speaking on a podcast. They are trying hard to connect to the ideas. So if we have to get pushed into these spaces, you know, it helps to say, what was the actual problem you were trying to solve for? And in what ways might these technologies be truer to human experience than they appear at the outset? Yeah, I mean, I think Yehuda, that's really that's a really uh, profound thing to to consider uh, and think about, and also the fact that so much of our communication has to do with trust, just like trusting each other, trusting that people know what we mean when we use uh, shorthand or just uh, trying to say um, uh, different things. Uh, I'll just share one one more perspective here. Uh, I know it's not the same at all, but David, when you were asking, is this temporary or not? I kept thinking about my experience on maternity leave when I had a baby um, four and a half months ago, that I was actually experiencing social isolation for about three months or so of really barely leaving my home, knowing that I had to be with the baby every three hours. Um, uh, and, and it was not easy. Uh, and one of the things that it, that it did actually is that when that ended, um, I valued um, social interaction so much more. There was like an acknowledgement of actually how how beautiful and how powerful it was to be in the same room as other people and to be in community in community with them um and one one more thing that i want to that i want to add to this that i'm thinking about i'm not sure yet how to fully conceive of it but i think there's a very existential question that this brings to the fore and that is the following part of what this pandemic is teaching us or showing us 
is that the source of so much of our happiness, joy, celebration, and community is being with each other. But that's actually also at the same time the source of danger, right? Uh, the, 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 whole, the whole human connectivity is paradoxically the source of the, of the best in us and the source of what could potentially kill each other. And I just don't know if we can ever avoid that. And virtual reality is a way to kind of try to get around it by saying, okay, let's get the good part without the danger. But, but I, have a, I have a sense that we're going to realize that true intimacy uh, and the ability to be with each other involves, it, it involves, um, it involves danger. Um, and, and, and not only does it involve danger, but the ability to transcend the danger also involves being with each other. It involves collaborating, thinking of each other, uh, and somehow finding a way to use connectivity um, in, in ways that uh, protect each other as opposed to, to harm each other. So, so I think this is going to be a moment of, of learning a lot about who we are and who we want to be. David, see if I can flip the script on you for a second, since you've studied the history of technology, since you've, you're an early adopter in general, and you're watching basically a, a massive adoption in incredibly fast ways, not just by business communities who are adjusting to running an organization via Zoom, but watching a Jewish community within a couple of days issuing responsa about the permissibility of hearing Megillah over Zoom, or reading it over Zoom, trying to figure out how do we run Judaism through these technologies. What does it look like and feel like to someone who's been thinking about the pace of change around technology in religion to watch this happen? Uh, and what are the trends that you think we should be listening for? One thing that springs to mind is the shift in the way that people wrote with the invention of the telegraph. So telegraphs are very expensive. Every single letter costs money. And when people started using the telegraph, they would write letters as though they were you know, writing letters. They would be extremely long and they would have full punctuation and they were incredibly expensive. And quickly they realized that you actually can't write like this if you were going to use this medium properly. And you ended up with an abbreviated way of talking, which to us seems so natural with our texting, we actually don't realize that this was an innovation that came around because of the telegraph. And I think one of the things that happens when there's a shift from one technology to another or one medium to another is that there's a kind of transition period where at the beginning, people try to make the new medium resemble the old as much as possible, right? People try to have their virtual experiences feel as much like their physical experiences as possible. And that makes sense for the first while. After that, there comes a time when people realize, actually, this medium is different. It's different in some ways, which are good, and some ways, which are not. And that means innovating in, in all kinds of new ways. I think despite the efforts that have been made so far within the Jewish community, within other communities, to turn virtual spaces into spaces that feel as physical as possible, we're still in that transition space. And depending on how long this outbreak goes on and how long we are in this condition, I think we will end up seeing some very interesting creativity and innovation go into this space because physical spaces are not available because we can't so easily go back to them. In some ways, this makes me think about the transition, also thinking about a kind of exile or kind of migration. This makes me think about the transition from a temple Judaism to a rabbinic Judaism, where there are attempts early on to try to take the ways that people worship in the temple, including language around temple worship, and transfer it into a Judaism which is not temple-centric anymore. And that is a difficult transition. And that transition starts out being much more interested in the temple service and in the ways in which it is attempting to emulate the temple service, and then evolves into something which is quite different and I think quite beautiful. So 
this is really a period of great creativity and I'm really excited to see what people come up with. Yeah, there was a lot that was moving and challenging in watching Purim this year in relationship to these technologies. I'll tell you what, from my perspective, worked and what didn't work. It was very moving to watch one of our friend's kids have her bat mitzvah on Purim morning. And it worked because actually you had a big camera set up. So everybody saw the bat mitzvah girl reading Megillah and smiling. And it was kind of a one-way technology. Apropos your point, David Svi, as a broadcast mechanism, it was actually great. Purim Suda, the feast didn't work that well on Zoom because the tape delays, the slight delays made our singing together not effective. And then also there were moments, I don't know if you followed this, of Chabad. Chabad showed up in New Rochelle and read Megillah walking around on people's porches. And that was both kind of old school technology, but also something very new and adaptive about this as well. And uh, as you indicated, we may be on the verge of not just a move from traditional media into new media, but the really interesting work is when ritual and communal life actually starts to shift because of these technologies and winds up creating something that's that's totally new. You know, David Sveni Hood, I'll just also share one question that I'm struggling with. I don't know the answer to this. As we are talking about virtual communities and learning and celebrations and ritual and religious life, is that I'm not I'm not sure about uh, you know the ethical questions we need to be asking ourselves about what it means to prioritize our time and resources in trying to build better virtual and religious communities for ourselves for our communities when there's going to be a lot of very significant need coming from other parts of our neighborhoods and our city. So I know that I am I'm, I'm, I'm naming it as a real question that I'm struggling with. What does it mean to want to invest time in, in curating uh, beautiful Torah learning for this moment? And at the same time, knowing that I could be spending time in different ways, uh, volunteering and thinking about my social consciousness about the hundreds of thousands of individuals who literally are struggling to put food on the table on the table right now. That's a question that I don't think is going to be resolved anytime soon, but it's one that we're going to have to grapple with in the months ahead. Right. So maybe Purim is a little bit of a window into these various choices in which we have ritual obligations that we have to ourselves, to our communities, where we saw efforts to try to hold together communities and families, whether through uh, Chabad's roving Megillah readings in New Rochelle, which were kind of old technology brought in a new way, or attempts to sustain community through synagogues that did Megillah reading via Zoom. But as you rightly point out, Michal, part of what Purim is supposed to engender in us is a sense of broader social and political responsibility that's not merely about the observances of these particular mitzvot, but about transforming who we are in the world. And so hopefully this Purim was both a window into a technological future, but also a kind of reminder of the deeper set of responsibilities that we bear as Jews and as people. Anyway, thank you for listening to our show and special thanks this week to our guests, David Svi and Michal Biton. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svi and by Dan Friedman and edited by David Svi as well. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are available. Stay healthy. See you next week, and thanks for listening.